This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of fifth metatarsal base fracture from the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Fifth metatarsal base fractures are among the most common fractures of the foot and are predisposed to poor healing due to the limited blood supply to the specific areas of the fifth metatarsal base. Diagnosis is made with plain radiographs of the foot. Treatment can include protected weight bearing, immobilization, or surgery, depending on the location of the fracture, degree of displacement, and athletic level of the patient. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, fifth metatarsal base fractures are frequent injuries encountered in the primary care setting. Base of the fifth metatarsal fracture accounts for 25% of all metatarsal fractures, and 90% are zone 1 fractures. Demographics include athletes, military recruits, and manual laborers. Moving on to the etiology, in terms of pathophysiology and mechanism of injury, plantar flexion and hind foot inversion leads to zone 1 fractures, forefoot adduction leads to zone 2 fractures, and repetitive microtrauma leads to zone 3 fractures. Associated conditions include concomitant midfoot injuries, for example, Lisfranc injuries, lateral ankle ligamentous laxity, and cavus foot as well as varus hind foot deformities. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. The osteology of the fifth metatarsal is divided into the tuberosity, base, metadiaphysis, diaphysis, neck, and head. The base and tuberosity is primarily cancellous and highly vascularized. The tuberosity flares from the base. It is also the site of the peroneus brevis and lateral band of the plantar fascia insertion. Know that an open apophysis or osperineum may be confused for a fracture. Therefore, comparison radiographs are warranted. The metadiaphyseal region has no tendinous attachments and is a vascular watershed area. The diaphysis has a dorsal curve in the distal one-third, and the peroneus tertius inserts on the dorsal diaphysis. The neck of the fifth metatarsal is in the distal metadiaphyseal region and is a more common site of fracture. The head of the fifth metatarsal articulates with the proximal phalanx to form the metatarsal phalangeal joint. In terms of blood supply, the blood supply is provided by the metaphyseal vessels and the diaphyseal nutrient artery. Zone 2 or Jones fractures represent a vascular watershed area, making these fractures prone to non-union. In terms of the biomechanics, know that fifth metatarsal forms the lateral border of the forefoot and functions as a lever and gate during push-off. Moving on to the classification of fifth metatarsal base fractures, the ones to know include the TORG anatomic classification and the TORG radiographic classification. So in the TORG anatomic classification, the fifth metatarsal is divided into three zones. Zone 1 fractures are also known as pseudo-Jones fractures and are proximal tubercle avulsion fractures due to the long plantar ligament, lateral band of the plantar fascia, or contraction of the peroneus brevis. These fractures may extend into the cubo-metatarsal joint. However, non-union in zone 1 is uncommon. Zone 2 fractures are also known as Jones fractures and are fractures at the metaphyseal diaphyseal junction. It involves the 4th and 5th metatarsal articulation. Know that this is a vascular watershed area, and these typically present as acute injuries. Know that there is an increased risk of non-union for zone 2 fractures, specifically 15 to 30%. Finally, zone 3 fractures are proximal diaphyseal fractures and are distal to the 4th and 5th metatarsal articulation. These represent stress fractures in athletes and are associated with cavovarus foot deformities or sensory neuropathies and know that there is an increased risk of non-union for zone 3 fractures. Moving on to the TORG radiographic classification, type 1 is characterized by a narrow fracture line without intramedullary sclerosis, and the fracture age is acute. 
Type 2 is characterized by a widened fracture line with intramedullary sclerosis, and the fracture age is a delayed union. Finally, type 3 is characterized by a widened intramedullary canal with no callus, and the fracture age is defined as a non-union. Moving on to the presentation of a fifth metatarsal base fracture, the history involves antecedent pain in the setting of a stress fracture, rapid increase in workload, or change in a training regimen. Symptom location includes pain over the lateral border of the forefoot, especially with weight-bearing. In terms of aggravating-slash-alleviating factors, note that these injuries are worse on weight-bearing. With physical exam, inspection may reveal rare skin tenting from zone 1 fractures, tenderness to palpation along the bone at the fracture site, varus hindfoot alignment during weight-bearing, cavus foot deformity, excessive lateral wear pattern on shoe treads, and fifth metatarsal head callosity. In terms of motion assessment, be sure to evaluate for lateral ligamentous instability and whether the varus hindfoot is correctable. Provocative tests include pain with resisted foot eversion, which indicates perineal tendon weakness. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, and oblique foot images. In terms of findings, a radiograph details the fracture pattern and location. You may also find intramedullary sclerosis and lack of periosteal callus reaction, which is indicative of chronicity. Note that the callus forms medially first and progresses laterally. Findings of a plantar fracture gap lends to poor prognosis for union with non-operative treatment. Finally, another potential finding is a plantar flexed first metatarsal and a high meres angle, which indicates a cavovarus deformity. Bone scan is indicated when there's suspicion for stress fracture with equivocal radiographs. Findings include uptake within the diaphysis. CT is indicated to evaluate the degree of fracture healing in the setting of delayed slash non-union or following surgical fixation. An MRI is indicated when there's suspicion for stress fracture with equivocal radiographs or bone scan. Findings include a high signal stress reaction and edema. Treatment of a fifth metatarsal base fracture can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes protected weight-bearing in a stiff-soled shoe, boot, or cast, as well as non-weight-bearing in a short-leg cast for 6-8 to eight weeks. Protected weight-bearing in a stiff-soled shoe, boot, or cast is indicated for a zone 1 fracture without rotational displacement. In terms of outcomes, union is typically achieved by 8 weeks, and fibrous unions are infrequently symptomatic. Know that these patients have early return to work, but symptoms may persist for up to 6 months. Non-weight-bearing in a short-leg cast for 6-8 to eight weeks is indicated for a zone 2 fracture in a recreational athlete, as well as a zone 3 fracture. In terms of outcomes, there is a high non-union rate and risk of refracture approaching 33% in zone 2 fractures. Operative options include intramedullary screw fixation, as well as open reduction internal fixation with plates and screws. Intramedullary screw fixation is indicated for zone 1 fractures with a rotational displacement or skin tenting, zone 2 or Jones fractures in elite or competitive athletes, as well as zone 3 fractures in athletic individuals, cavovarus alignment, or with sclerosis slash non-union, otherwise known as a TORG type 2 or 3. Know that intramedullary screw fixation in the setting of a zone 2 or Jones fracture in elite or competitive athletes minimizes the possibility of non-union or prolonged restriction from activity. In terms of outcomes for intramedullary screw fixation, know that bony union rates approach 100% in most series. Finally, open reduction and internal fixation with plate and screws have the same indications as intramedullary screw fixation. Another indication is a salvage for a non-union following intramedullary screw fixation. As far as outcomes, early data show plate and screw constructs have equivalent strength to intramedullary fixation. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. So in terms of protected weight-bearing in a stiff-soled shoe, boot, or cast, the technique includes advancing weight-bearing as tolerated by pain, 
Know that union is achieved by eight weeks, and fibrous unions are infrequently symptomatic, and there is early return to work, but symptoms may persist for up to six months. In terms of non-weight-bearing in a short light cast for six to eight weeks, as far as the technique, know that weight-bearing is advanced with signs of radiographic callus around four to six weeks. Zone 3 fractures often require six to seven weeks of non-weight-bearing immobilization. There are reports of extracorporeal shockwave therapy with similar union rates as internal fixation for zone 3 stress fractures. Moving on to intramedullary screw fixation, in terms of the approach, the patient would be placed supine with a bump under the hip and fluoroscopy immediately available. This can be done with a percutaneous-slash-limited open approach. You will make a short longitudinal incision proximal to the tuberosity parallel with a plantar surface. In terms of soft tissue work, blunt dissection will be carried out past the sural nerve branches to the tuberosity between the peroneus longus and brevis tendons. Using fluoroscopy, the K-wire starting position is superior and medial on the tuberosity. This is known as a, quote, high and inside position. Note that the K-wire does not need to be passed further than the metatarsal curvature. In terms of reduction, the K-wire is placed intramedullary, and fluoroscopy is used to confirm the location. A soft tissue protector is then placed, and the wire may be removed or a cannulated drill used to open the canal and drill a pilot hole. Then you will sequentially tap to be able to place a screw larger than 4 millimeters in diameter. In terms of instrumentation, the tap can be used to measure the appropriate screw length. 4.5 millimeter, 5.5 millimeter, or 6.5 millimeter diameter partially threaded screws are placed. It is recommended to use the largest diameter screw that can be accommodated. Fluoroscopy must be used to confirm all threads cross the fracture site and that there is no distal cortical perforation. If a fracture gap persists or in cases of non-union slash revision, bone graft material may be added at the fracture site. In terms of rehabilitation, there will be a short period of non-weight-bearing, specifically one to three weeks, followed by protected weight-bearing and beginning therapy focused on range of motion and non-impact aerobic exercises. Running and impact activities are commenced at six weeks if the surgical site is pain-free and there are signs of radiographic callus. Finally, moving on to open reduction with plate and screw internal fixation, the approach will be a longitudinal incision centered over the proximal fifth metatarsal. The bone work involves a typical plantar fracture gap and or rotational displacement that's able to be reduced. Instrumentation includes a 3mm plate that is bent to contour to the plantar lateral surface of bone to compress the fracture. Now let's end this review session talking about some complications. The ones to know include non-union, failure of fixation, refracture, painful hardware, sural nerve injury, and chronic pain. So starting with non-union, in terms of incidence, non-union rates for zone 2 injuries are as high as 15 to 30 percent. Risk factors include zone 2 and zone 3 fractures due to the vascular supply. Other risk factors include small diameter screws that is less than 4.5 millimeters which are associated with delayed or non-union. Other risk factors include nutritional deficiencies like vitamin D or hormonal deficiencies like thyroid deficiency. Treatment of a non-union includes revision intramedullary screw fixation with the use of bone grafting. Moving on to failure of fixation, risk factors include elite athletes, return to sports prior to radiographic union, and fracture distraction or malreduction due to screw length. Know that screws that are too long will straighten the curved metatarsal shaft or perforate the medial cortex. A screw that is too short will not compress the fracture. Treatment will be revision internal fixation. Moving on to refracture, as far as incidence, 33% of zone 2 fractures following non-operative treatment go on to refracture. Risk factors include a cavovarus foot deformity, stress fractures, vitamin D insufficiency, as well as removal of the intramedullary screw. Treatment includes internal fixation with surgical correction of the cavovarus deformity if present, 
and leave the screw in place until the end of the patient's athletic career. Moving on to painful hardware, this is a rare complication following intramedullary screw fixation. Risk factors include a screw head that is left prominent, which can irritate the sural nerve branches. Treatment includes modified shoe wear. Moving on to sural nerve injury, risk factors include direct trauma during screw insertion and prominent screw head impinging on the nerve branches. Know that the dorsal lateral branch of the sural nerve is within 2 to 3 millimeters of the tuberosity. As far as treatment, sural nerve injury is prevented by using a tissue protector during the procedure and sinking the screw head. Finally, chronic pain is another potential complication, however it's uncommon, and may be the result of a zone 1 fracture non-union after initial conservative treatment. The treatment will be fragment excision and reattachment of the peroneus brevis tendon. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A patient presents to your office with lateral midfoot pain after an inversion injury. In which of the following scenarios would early surgical intervention be indicated? And the choices are 1. Collegiate soccer player with an acute non-displaced zone 2 proximal 5th metatarsal fracture. 2. High school varsity lacrosse player with a subacute zone 2 proximal 5th metatarsal fracture and no evidence of bony healing after one month of conservative management. 3. Elite dancer with an acute zone 1 proximal 5th metatarsal fracture. 4. Recreational football player with an acute zone 2 proximal 5th metatarsal fracture. And 5. All of the above. The correct answer to this question is 1. Collegiate soccer player with an acute non-displaced zone 2 proximal 5th metatarsal fracture. So initial surgical management is indicated in elite athletes with zone 2 and 3 proximal 5th metatarsal fractures. Without having failed the trial of non-operative management, those in recreational athletes or patients with zone 1 fractures, regardless of activity level, should initially be managed conservatively. Proximal 5th metatarsal fractures are subdivided into three zones. Zone 1 or pseudo-Jones fractures involve avulsions of the proximal tubercle and may enter the 5th tarsometatarsal joint, but are proximal to the 4th, 5th intermetatarsal joint. These injuries heal very reliably with protected weight-bearing in a hard-soled shoe or boot and rarely necessitate surgical management unless chronic or significantly displaced. Zone 2, or a true Jones fracture, involves the metatapaseal junction and enter the 4th, 5th intermetatarsal joint. These are acute fractures often sustained from inversion injury and have a relatively high risk of non-union, that is up to 30%, due to the limited local vascularity. Zone 3 fractures are distal to the 4th, 5th articulation and are most often chronic and stress-related. Like zone 2 fractures, these two are at moderate risk of non-union, and as a result, surgical fixation is indicated even in the setting of acute and non-displaced zone 2 and zone 3 proximal 5th metatarsal fractures in elite athletes, defined as collegiate, Olympic, and professional level. In non-elite athletes and lay people, surgery is reserved for failure of at least 6 to 8 weeks of non-operative management or in the setting of unacceptable displacement. Rosenberg et al. review the current recommendations on management of proximal 5th metatarsal fractures. The authors note that zone 1 fractures can almost always be managed successfully with protected weight-bearing, though occasionally these may require operative intervention in the setting of a significant intra-articular step-off or symptomatic non-union. Due to the moderate risk of non-union with zone 2 and 3 fractures, Current evidence supports early operative intervention with intramedullary screw fixation to optimize rapid return to sports. O'Malley et al. reported their experience in treating proximal 5th metatarsal fractures among professional basketball players within the NBA. 
The authors managed all 10 zone 2 and zone 3 fractures with initial fixation supplemented by either bone marrow aspirate concentrate or open bone grafting. Radiographic healing was evident by 7.5 weeks and all returned to play by 9.8 weeks. Despite evidence of radiographic healing prior to return to play, 3 of the 10 went on to refracture. The authors associated refracture with metatarsus adductus and recommended for open bone grafting in this setting to mitigate this risk. Murawski et al. retrospectively reviewed the outcomes of percutaneous fixation of zone 2 and 3 proximal metatarsal fractures in competitive athletes. At a minimum one-year final follow-up, the authors found a mean time to fracture healing of 5 weeks with one delayed union and one refracture. Two of the 26 did not return to the previous level of sport. The authors concluded that percutaneous fixation with bone marrow aspirate concentrate supplementation was reliable for the initial management of competitive athletes with zone 2 and 3 proximal metatarsal fractures. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, a high school varsity lacrosse player with a subacute zone 2 proximal 5th metatarsal fracture and no evidence of bony healing after one month of conservative management is incorrect as surgery is not indicated for a high school level that is a non-elite athlete with a zone 2 5th metatarsal base fracture who have not yet failed at least 6 to 8 weeks of conservative management. Answer 3, elite dancer with an acute zone 1 proximal 5th metatarsal fracture is incorrect as zone 1 5th metatarsal base fracture should initially be managed conservatively even in elite athletes given their healing potential. Answer 4, recreational football player with an acute zone 2 proximal 5th metatarsal fracture is incorrect as surgery is not indicated for recreational or non-elite athletes with a zone 2 5th metatarsal base fracture who has yet to fail conservative management. And finally, answer 5, all of the above is incorrect as only the patient in scenario 1, that is a collegiate soccer player with an acute non-displaced zone 2 proximal 5th metatarsal fracture, is the only patient for which initial surgical management would be appropriate. And moving on to the final question. A 23-year-old professional skier presents to the orthopedic clinic with foot pain after a mechanical fall at home. He is diagnosed with the zone 2 base of the 5th metatarsal fracture and is recommended for internal fixation. Which of the following is the primary advantage of operative intervention for these fractures compared to non-operative treatment? And the choices are 1. Improve union rate. 2. Decrease pain. 3. Decrease heterotopic ossification. 4. Improve range of motion. And 5. Reduce long-term costs. The correct answer to this question is 1. Improved union rate. So operative intervention has been shown consistently to have higher union rates than non-operative intervention for zone 2 Jones fractures in elite athletes. Jones fractures are believed to occur in the watershed region of the base of the 5th metatarsal with subsequently lower overall healing slash union rates compared to other metaphyseal fractures. Non-operative management often requires extended periods of immobilization and non-weight bearing for healing. In elite athletes, operative management, typically with intramedullary screw fixation with or without bone graft, has been shown to improve union rates and secondarily reduce overall immobilization time, which may lead to earlier return to play, though high refracture rates from return to play prior to full healing are still seen. Roche et al. performed a systematic review of outcomes after treatment of Jones fracture in athletes. From 26 studies, only one of which was a randomized controlled trial, they found pooled union rates of 96% versus 76% for operative versus non-operative treatment respectively. Return to sport ranged from 4 to 18 weeks after screw fixation. Jobjack et al. conducted a retrospective review of 42 athletes with zone 2 and zone 3 injuries of the base of the 5th metatarsal, 9 of whom refused surgery and underwent non-operative management. 
They report 100% versus 45% union rate in operative versus non-operative management, as well as significantly improved modified foot score results in the operative group. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, decreased pain is incorrect, as it has not been consistently shown that pain is decreased with operative management. Answer 3, decreased heterotopic ossification is incorrect, as it has not been shown that heterotopic ossification is less likely with operative versus non-operative treatment, nor is that a significant problem with these injuries. Answer 4, improved range of motion is incorrect, as it has not been shown that long-term range of motion in the foot differs between operative and non-operative treatment. Finally, answer 5, reduced long-term cost is incorrect, as long-term cost-effectiveness is unknown for operative versus non-operative management of Jones fractures and is not the primary goal of operative care. That's all for this review about fifth metatarsal base fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.